Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. Better pray you make a dollar more, karma be slick Bet them no coins in your palm make you sweat Be flat in this major, I ball and I'm blessed I'm Jupiter-minded, I call any bet I bet you ain't sh- It's cruel love, send X and O's It's who you ask or how the story goes You designed the house that ain't a home Now you will face the road ahead alone All in time to fix, we get exposed Swords come out, face get set in stone It's been clear you're not like us If bars are broke, through ties are cut Man, how do you avoid them fake ones? You got a problem then say something Truth is never been partial to fake love Through the grass I can see that you a snake love I never switch I'm always down with the click When they strike they gon' be beat And we never sleep Until we all get to our dreams Kill them, rinse, repeat That's my gang, that's my squad Those my girls, that's my dog That's my best friend, that's my twin That's my sin squad, we all win That's my rider, that's my bay Those my day ones, we all stay That's my we never quit They for the click, I'm with Yo, we'll switch Brand new from Toronto Hip Hop Collective, The Sorority. That is a track called The Switch. It dropped this morning at midnight, last night at midnight, however you say it. You're tuned into 101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range. I'm Michael Elves, and uh, we got a busy show for you tonight. We're going to be talking to our pal Malcolm J in just a few minutes. Uh, we've got Josh Finlayson of Sky Diggers on in a while, and we've got an interview that I did last week with U of M alum Dr. Jen Gunter as well, and some more great new music, including this one from Nestor Windrush featuring Odario. This is a Distance here on 101.5 UMFM. <laughs> 
break, you just bend. Never injured, always on demand. Point A to point C. When point B to I C. Tap dance for dance, where my doubts down me. Roblox to motion, cool my emotions. Some scars alarming, a racial harming. I'm cool, I'm coasting. Depression sets in, quicksand is sinking. Tim's a twin twin, a caffeine, caffeine, please kick in. Anxiety, a lot of me. I need to pick me up, up, up to the sixth floor where the lift not work no more. No inspiration pouring around here. Ice blocks, sidewalks, streets never cleared. Can't use my wheelchair. Give us some time. 
right. Well, playing next Friday, October 11th at the Park Theater alongside Apollo Suns and Amadians. Malcolm J., our old pal here on Thank God It's Free Range, joins us once again. How are you doing, Matt? Hey, I've uh, been pretty good. How have you been? Uh, I've been pretty good. I, I would have to say I'm in the same category. You've been very busy, though. Uh, I would say maybe even busier or logging at least a lot more kilometers than I have. That's for sure. Um, yeah, it's been busy. <laughs> yeah, so... I mean, obviously, this is kind of just like you're you're back in the city. You're kind of you got this show, and it seems kind of in that sort of like lull period. Is that am I mistaken with that? Uh, no, it's actually I'm actually going to the U to play Breakout West, and then uh, I'm coming right back to do this when I get back. And it was just kind of a yeah, an opening that came up. Uh, Apollo Suns reached out to me, and I'm like, okay, sounds like a good opportunity. So. So you're doing Breakout West before that? I am, yeah. So uh okay. that right before. So just a few days before, yeah. I must have looked at your event page wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Breakout West is um this coming weekend. And then I get back on Monday and then I'm doing uh this event for the eleventh. Now is the the Breakout West thing like a showcase one or what's what's the, the deets on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a festival showcase and I'm doing two showcases out there. And is it mostly kind of like for hip hop heads, or like kind of geared towards hip hop audiences? Oh no, it's a multi genre. It's a multi genre because I was going to ask you because with this Apollo Sons of Madian show, it's it's obviously multi genre as well. Is this something you're kind of seeing more and more? Is like kind of cross genre bill creation? Yeah, honestly, um, I like to live in the multi genre kind of realm with my music a little bit, just because I do play with a band, so. It, tends to help do the crossover a little bit. If I'm, but I can also do straight hip-hop shows. So, I mean, um, for my career, I've been noticing I've been, like, doing more cross-genre, but um, I, it's good to see that happening, too, in the music scene where they have more hip-hop acts playing at festivals that have been traditionally more rock or indie. So it's been definitely changing over the years. Well, I would say, like, kind of on a commercial level, like on radio, like hip hop has supplanted rock as kind of the the lingua franca, right? Like the the predominant genre. Yes. Yeah. So it stands to reason then the festivals and things like that that had pre- previously been pretty rock heavy that hip hop the the scales would kind of tip towards hip hop at this point. Yeah, I think it's just um, especially in Canada. I think things are just catching up with hip hop on the global scale. So, I mean. Hip-hop's the most popular, but that demographic, too, is usually probably 18 to 25, and then I still think people have a taste from when they were growing up, if you're looking at 25-plus, so it might take time to shift all those festivals to be hip-hop-centric or more like that, but it's definitely changing in Canada. Well, we're definitely, we're hitting the point where, you know, a lot of the kind of, like, touring rock acts have already done their, like, you know, this album's this many years old, and now we're getting into like hip-hop albums being, you know, 20 and 30 years old? Yes. Yeah, that kind of makes me feel old when I hear that kind of stuff, too. Oh, oh, believe me, like when I find out like Illmatic is like 30 years old and like, you know, these, well, I guess it's, uh, it's 25 for Illmatic, 25. it's 30 yeah. for De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. Those are the two that kind of floored me this year. Yeah, that is, um, that's pretty, yeah, that's intense. <laughs> so looking kind of, at at your recent history, and then kind of looking at at the history head, you said you know you've kind of transitioned to having more of a, a band thing, but you can still do the the solo hip hop thing. Like, do you have 
do you see that as like kind of a natural progression or has this been kind of like experimentation or what's led you this path? I think it's just uh, over the years, just wanting to try something different every time with music. So uh, like what I was in the Happen Fortunate for the longest time, we just did backing beats and two MCs, which is like the bread and butter for hip hop. And mm-hmm. I love it. It's still, it's still a place for just playing with the DJ. I love doing that. But um, I don't know. I just really enjoy playing with the band. It allows me to allows us to be more dynamic when we perform, change things up. And the recorded song that I have doesn't sound exactly like my live version, which I really like. Because sometimes when you're just playing through your instrumental, it's kind of, you can't really change that beat. So it's still the same as your recorded song. So. Oh, so I kinda like doing that, yeah. You would be locked in on stage on a performance because of like a backing track. Yeah, and I still perform with backing tracks with my band, but then I could have that song finished, so keep going on and do something different if we're feeling it right. I find myself freestyling way more because I have the freedom to continue playing after a song's finished um, with my band, kind of thing. So it's just a bit more flexible, right? And uh, and I have a really good relationship with them, so we have a really good. We're all on the same page. So it feels pretty good when we perform. Was there a certain record or a certain act that kind of got you into the idea of doing like a live band for your for your hip hop? Oh, um, I mean, it's interesting because I listen to a lot of different genres, not just hip hop. So whenever I watch performances, I get inspiration not just from watching other rappers, but um, like I mean, of, of course, the roots jumps out. Of- people that do that but then when you watch other big touring artists like even Kendrick Lamar or when you see Kanye live he still plays with a live band to complement his songs as well or to reinvent them so whenever I see uh, bigger artists performing with with bands that's just inspiration for me to be like yeah I can still be a rapper mm-hmm. and play with live instruments so yeah and it's interesting because there's also been like Super Duty Tough Work has kind of come up with this live band version of hip-hop as, as well recently it seems to be kind of something brewing in, yeah that's, in the, in the that's local really scene. that's really really caught on that's a really cool sound to have and uh it's pretty fresh so. for sure are there any like current mcs that you're are floating your boat like uh, either like you know for their flow or for just kind of like their lyricism what like what are you listening to in in the hip-hop vein what am I listening to the hip hop? You know, it's uh, you know, I, I'm uh, I can't think of it in the top of my head. The problem now is a, uh, I know I'm putting Spotify. you on the spot. Yeah, but actually, the problem I find is that with Spotify, right? It's uh, they just recommend songs for you now, and I oftentimes enjoy listening to an artist, but I want to listen to one of their songs, and then and it I flows into like, another playlist track or something. Yeah, and I'll play that song on repeat, but it doesn't stick in my head as much as I used to. Where I would go. I want to go and get this artist's album and download it uh, and focus on it. It's kind of just like a song at a time now, so I have a hard time. My head who I'm really into, but one artist, actually, a Canadian artist, that, uh, that they're actually from Whitehorse, and I met them last year at Breakout West when I was in Kelowna, and they're called Local Boy, and uh, they're a hip-hop act from Canada. I recommend checking them out. I'm actually, I don't often get inspired by, like, other artists that I just meet in passing because I usually look up to huge artists, but these guys blow me and they're from Whitehorse. So if you ever get a chance, we call Local Boy. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll 
put a post to that on on the website for the for the show logs today. Um, the the uh, the Spotify thing where you're listening to a track and it doesn't necessarily stick as to who the artist is. Do you feel that might be like a hindrance as a, as a contemporary artist yourself, right? Like the, like maybe one of your tracks comes up and, and people listen to it, they dig it, but kind of the, the stickiness of, of like, Oh, who is this? I had to find them versus like it was given to me on a digital platter. Yeah. It's a little bit different. It's almost like radio where you might hear a song on the radio in passing and they don't announce who it was. And if you don't go back and check who was on that playlist or, or you don't take the effort to look into it, then, yeah, you could miss out on making connections. So, yeah, the new game of streaming is a little bit different than how things used to be. Um, but, yeah, I think it is uh, it is a little bit difficult because sometimes you can see artists that have... I can see their Spotify page has, like, you know, 10,000 monthly listeners, but then you check their other accounts but they don't have a ton of fans as well so it's almost like you have a lot of plays but it's hard sometimes to capture the mass forever fans if you're just you know a 10 second listen on a playlist you know right so, so. in i mean you're you're very busy on uh, i know on instagram you got a ton of followers look, looking at like almost seventeen thousand at this point uh obviously you got a very big digital footprint like do you feel satisfied with what you're doing as kind of an individual artist who's getting his own stuff out there? Yeah, I, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I think I've, I I think you're the first person that listened to my music, actually, when I was like 19. I gave you a CD uh, back. And then where I am now, it's really... Um, it, I do feel satisfied where I'm at. I mean, the numbers are the numbers I could look at. I think to bigger places, but that's not ultimately what makes me happy. I'm really content that I can, you know, uh, travel for my music, reach people that are into my music, and not have to feel filtered about what I make in my music. Mm. I'm happy with who I'm working with, and I can't really ask for more than that, you know. Yeah, I guess numbers isn't as important as, like, engagement with those numbers, right? Like, kind of depth, not breadth in terms of uh, response. Do you find that uh, the the opportunity to you know connect with people around the world who listen to you? Whoa, you okay? Yeah. No, sorry, uh, there was like a scratch in the line there for a second. Oh yeah, it, yeah. To connect, it just went like. Oh, you still hear me? Yeah, uh, you're. Uh, talk again. Yeah. Uh, hello. Okay, it just kind of yeah. There was like a crazy like staticky thing. Um, the. The opportunity to connect with people who listen to you kind of around the world and, and, and engage with them, is that like helpful to the creative process to like kind of get feedback from people who aren't necessarily like tied to you in some sense? Yeah, actually, yeah, Instagram's great for that because oftentimes I'll just post uh, Instagram stories of me in the studio working on rough ideas and songs. And I'll get feedback from people on what they like, and sometimes it helps guide me like, hey, this is actually not a half bad idea. I might actually finish this song and polish it off. And I think so. Um, it is good to get that feedback from people from all over the place. And, um, yeah, I honestly, I, the thing I love about social media is that I can actually have conversations with people that listen to my music and feel like I can reach out to them. And it's, uh, I've always felt music is a two-way experience, not a one-way. Here's my ideas and I'm just trying to push over to you and listen to it. It's great to, same thing with performing, it's great to have uh, feedback both sides from it. 
Yeah, it is. It is a two way thing. It's funny. I was talking to an author recently about kind of like the the listener or the reader kind of brings their own experience and and like arrives at a record or a book at, at a time in their life. Right. That how they respond to it might be different, you know, when they go back to it, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road or the kind of day they're having or what what kind of impact it has on them can vary based on on who they are in that moment and it is it like the the record isn't necessarily a passive thing it's like a conduit in some sense i agree and it, everyone interprets art in different ways right so what it what i intended for something something for something to me could be interpreted by someone completely differently and mm-hmm. that's all based on their life experience or who, how they view the world so right so where are things at in terms of cooking up new 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 material? Uh, so I released a project earlier this year called Restless. It was a short EP. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually uh, re-releasing it as a deluxe version at the end of November. I'm adding a bunch more tracks to it to make it a full length. And uh, I'm releasing that November 29th. I haven't announced it yet, but I'm having a release party at the Goodwill for that. So cool. stay tuned for more details on that. For sure. Um before we let you go, because we got to remind people you're playing next Friday at the Park Theater with Apollo Sons and Maudians, uh, maybe pick a track off Restless, like the, the version that's out there, and, oh, uh, and we can play yeah. it for listeners. You can play uh, Bittersweet. Bittersweet? Like that, like that track, though. All right. Well, uh, safe travels to Breakout West, Malcolm, and, uh, and uh, looking forward to having you back here in the city next week. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Great talking to you again.
like to make it different I like to show you all the ways I'm changing how I'm living Round and round the world has me twisted Second guessing my feelings and always seem to miss it But all I wanna do is give you full attention Give you all my focus from this place below the heavens I get distracted sometimes and learn my lesson I gotta quit these excuses of imperfection But my problem is, <laughs> I made so many promises Left too many things unsaid, I'm not too proud of it And now I'm coming right back to set the record straight The feeling's bittersweet, I made the same mistakes And I just wanna make it better You've been my number one that I've been searching for forever You've been an inspiration and helped me find peace Your love keeps me calm when I sleep You know the feeling's bittersweet
All right, well, we are in the studio with Dr. Jen Gunter, author of the Vagina Bible and alumnus of University of Manitoba. That's right. Welcome. Thank so, you. Uh, I like to talk about the text, about the book, but I maybe want to start with kind of your journey to, to where you are now from the U of M, since we're, we're right here at the Fort Gary campus. Right. Uh, uh, tell yeah. us how you, how you ended up where you are and, and kind of your, your, your path. Sure. So I went to U of M for medical school. So I never actually was on this campus. I was at the Banatine. Yeah, exactly. Banatine campus. And, uh, so yeah, but I, you know, walking in through here, I'm like, oh, I've been to many socials downstairs and, you know, um, so I've been here for many social events, let's put it that way. Uh, so yeah, I did my medical school at U of M and, uh, then I went to Western for five years to do my residency. And then I went to the U.S. to do my fellowship in infectious diseases. And then I stayed in the States because I was offered a good job. And I met some guy um, who, you know, I was, and ended up being very short-lived. But at the time, it seemed very important and that I should stay. Sure enough. Now, the, the residency, was that in obstetrics and gynecology? Yeah. yeah. So I did my OBGYN residency at Western. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then infectious diseases in Kansas City. And then you've focused on, like, you have a practice that, you know, obviously centered around this, but, like, that doesn't necessarily, you're going to mean to write a book eventually about this, (laughs) right? Right. So I was practicing, uh, you know, medicine in the States for um, maybe about uh, 12 years or so uh, when I uh, got pregnant and had children. And then my kids had a lot of complications because I delivered very prematurely. And so I had a lot of interaction with the healthcare system in the States, like a lot. Mm-hmm. My kids were in the intensive care unit for three months, and one of them was in and out for quite some time in the hospital, very ill. And so I started to see what it was like to be on the other side, and I noticed communication gaps and you know the way knowledge was passed from doctors to patients and how maybe it could be better. And I decided to write a book on prematurity, which I did. And then I started thinking, well, if it's that hard for parents of premature babies, what's it like for my patients? And so that's how I got interested in online information and how people access it, how how doctors deal with patients who are getting information online. You know, so many times doctors would say, oh, you shouldn't Google that. But why not? The Internet's a library. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying don't go there, we should be saying this is how you go there. This is how you use it. Um, And so I just got really involved with busting myths and giving people factual information. And then um, along the way, the New York Times thought my writing was good enough to ask me to write for them. So I have a couple columns for them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And then I also have a column for Dame Magazine. And, uh, and then I decided, you know what, there's still a lot of misinformation out there and people have a hard time with all, all these, this factual stuff that I'm putting out there accessing it. And so I thought, you know, women need a textbook and I'm going to write it. We said the internet's like a library. Yeah. And I mean, the case is there are some terrible books in a library, right? Exactly. Like you can't rule out the fact that there's, you know, how to build a bomb and other right. kinds of information out there. To then push back against this kind of information, does it feel like, you know, like trying to like build a sandcastle like right on the edge of the shore sometimes because like the deluge of 
And, and people don't always look at, you know, the sourcing of this mis- misinformation, right? Like one website, there, there's kind of like a level playing field in terms of a website is a website. Mm-hmm. And, and people don't necessarily gauge like, is this one, you know, medically sound, right? Like, is there, is there research to back up this claim? Right. And then the problem is, is you can have a website that also has good information and bad information, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and there's bias that's not disclosed. So there's a lot of layers of how it can be bad or good or a bit of both. So, you know, I think that it does at times feel like I'm trying to drink from a fire hose, definitely. Uh, but I would say that it seems to me that my message is somehow sticking with people and the that people are kind of getting it. And I guess the answer is, well, you can't say don't don't try to fix it, you know. So I was really naive when I first got online, you know, 12 or 10 years ago. I thought, I'm going to fix the medical Internet. Like, that's a really naive <laughs> thing to say, right? I was like, but you know what? I think I'm doing a pretty good job, actually. You know, my kids were in, uh, my kids are 16 now, and they were in school a couple of weeks ago, and they were learning in some social history class about fake news and how to spot it. And the teacher had the computer screen up, and she was Googling, you know, how to tell if something was fake news. And one of my sites came up, and I was like the expert in that. And so that's pretty cool. Were your parents, were, were your children impressed? Um, They were horrified. Okay, I'm, I'm wondering what age they're at, that they, whether they think it's cool or like... You know. I mean, they think it's cool when they're not in high school. Okay. So when they're not like within about 100, 100 meters of high school, then it's very cool. Sure. When we get in that 100 meter zone of high school, then it's very uncool. They're starting to unbuckle their seatbelt before you've even slowed the car yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, kind of just thing. like, don't, don't kiss me, don't anything. Um, and I, that's fine. But yeah, so I think that, you know, the... You have to give people the, the places to go to because we have to be realists. Those bad sites, those people that are building the equivalent of how to build a bomb books, like they're always going to be there. We're not going to make them go away. Mm-hmm. So we, what we have to do is we have to be more appealing to people. So creating a book like this then where you want it to encompass everything, right? Like this is – you call it the Vagina Bible because it's <laughs> meant to like, you know, kind of really cover the bases. Right. Gathering the information, framing it, and then also like, you know, backing it up with like research, because it seems like you either had to lean on other people who've researched a bunch of studies or look at all these studies yourself to kind of gauge, is this sound? Yeah. um, I mean, I... First of all, this is what I do all the every day. So this is like my field of practice, the vagina and vulva. So I had that advantage, obviously. Um, and I you know, was already considered and already am an international expert in the field. But, you know, I... Everything that I th- I thought I knew, I double-checked with studies because dogma gets in every field. Like, I don't care what field you're in in life, there's dogma. And so I, I read, <laughs> I, you know, I would say, I don't know how many thousands of articles for this, but um, or articles I already read before but pulled them out to make sure I had the right stuff. And, uh, you know, really, you know, many times I would pick – uh, you know, review articles written by noted experts. So, for example, there's a noted expert in urinary tract infections, Dr. Lindsay Nicole, who's from the University of Manitoba. Um, and she's she's like, like one of the world experts. So I know that if Lindsay Nicole writes this summary on urinary tract infections, I, I know it's accurate because she's she's the expert. So fortunately, you know, in some areas, there were those experts to pull on. Absolutely. There are some areas where there's knowledge gaps. Yeah. You, you talk about a lot of things where it's like, unfortunately, there's just no legitimate study on on this particular aspect of things. Do you tie that to your kind of overall argument about kind of like the structural 
uh, area of medicine that it's like a patriarchal system and it's also a capitalistic s- system, right? Where like knowledge is money. Exactly. So definitely there's there's part of it is definitely this patriarchal system where, you know, these concerns that women have have just been dismissed or haven't even been considered worthy of studying. If someone had thought them worthy of study, maybe they wouldn't have dismissing them. Women's complaints have been dismissed. Their descriptions of pain have been dismissed. So there's that. But there's also this huge capitalistic part of it as well. Absolutely. So if you look at the way many women live their lives, like the lubes you use for sex or the tampons you use or the pads or all these sort of not really medicine, but they're not really not medicine. Like if you have a problem, maybe they're causing it. You know, since there's not those companies have no investment in studying those products, all they have is something to lose. That there's no regulation by Health Canada or the FDA, so they can do what they want. But if you get a medical problem, we don't really have a lot of studies to tell you which is a product you should use, you shouldn't. So yeah, I mean, and it's a good example of how, for example, the sort of organic or natural industry has been mm. allowed to prey in that area, right? Yeah, and you talk about that like the. Chemical free is a BS term because yeah. like, even water has exactly. Chemicals. I don't. I don't want to be chemical free at all. I, I want to keep my chemicals in my body. And the, like these sort of like natural uh, naturalistic medicines. It, I, one of the things that I flagged to was when you were talking about probiotics. And while well, you said there's not like definitive proof one way or the other, there's an attitude like, well, it it won't hurt. But you say that attitude or like that approach to things can be harmful. Absolutely. You know, we don't know what we don't know, right? So at one point, someone thought, okay, well, thalidomide, that can't hurt. I can't see how that can hurt. Let's let's use that for morning sickness. Oh, right. We didn't realize that in this few weeks time of gestation, that's going to affect limb buds. Like, we don't know what we don't know. So I think that's a super important thing for people to think about. Just because something's natural, we have this natural fallacy and we give it a pass like it's benign, right? But it's not the case. I mean, arsenic's natural. It's not, you know, it's not benign. So I think that with natural, what we see is them coming in and kind of really preying on this idea that the natural fallacy, which many of us have, we're all kind of wired to believe that. And using made up words, I mean, natural, organic, those don't mean anything. Toxins, the way they're used are incorrect. So it's very easy because they're using sort of science-ish language and making it sound because they're also offering a lot of empathy and sometimes that's missing in medicine. So if somebody's listening to you, you think, well, how could they be trying to harm me or surely they've researched this? So when we get back to the we don't know, we don't know with probiotics, you know, the thing is, is that we don't actually really know everything about the vaginal microbiome. When I was in medical school at the University of Manitoba, the lactobacilli that we thought were important, we now know are have absolutely no importance in the vagina because molecular diagnostics have changed so much over 30 years. So there could be a lot of other things in the vagina we don't know about because we even haven't invented the technology to find it. So, you know, it's this idea that you can use this sort of hammer like a probiotic to replace something that's actually really very delicate is pretty naive. And certainly there are reports of people, you know, having problems with probiotics as well. But the biggest risk is that they probably don't, that many of them don't contain what they claim. And we don't really know how to replace the vaginal microbiome. I want to get back to the microbiome in a second. Okay. But the, the other thing about the, like, we don't know, and well, we can't hurt approach you talk about is that like this feeling that women are doing everything they can and having no success. And that it, like fosters this mind state that is, is like keeps them down or at least keeps them 
very guarded about their vaginal health or about their health altogether? Absolutely. So yeah, I call that the burden of, well, it can't hurt. So what happens is women come in and they have symptoms that are not appropriately evaluated. And so, or they may be hard to treat, but mostly it's that they're not appropriately evaluated. So they're told to do things like wear white cotton underwear and give up tampons and wear natural pads or pee after sex and drink cranberry juice and do all these things. And none of those things are probably going to harm you at all, like in any way, except they're not going to help you. So what happens then is then you come to see someone like me who's a subspecialist and you're exhausted because you've done five or six things and you feel broken because you've tried to make yourself better and you've done those things in good faith. Like the pharmacist recommended it. Maybe um, uh, what you thought was a trusted source online recommended it. Maybe even your doctor recommended it. And so you've tried all those things and none of it's worked. So now you feel broken and you think nobody else is suffering like you are. And so you stop talking about it because we have all this shame that's imparted into the genital tract. We don't say the words vulva. We don't say the words vagina. So now this part of your body that's shameful is broken and you never discuss it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, doctors might trust, you know, uh-huh. they might have said it. In terms of like the the necessity for doctors to stay up on literature, right, and, you know, stay current. I mean, at a certain point, you know, you get your degree, you're able to practice. If you just kind of keep your head down and take your patients in and stuff like that, if there's no kind of like necessity to research the the common best practices or the current best practices the latest research you are going to get like a knowledge gap where someone is kind of fixed in time at the point at which like they became a physician well i mean that's why we have continuing medical education and you know those are recommended well required to keep licensing active so you have to do a certain number of you know what we call you know credit hours to make sure you're up to date but i would i would hope that doctors are like me and they keep reading everything that's in their field that's new that comes out because you want to be the best i mean i want to be the best i want to offer people the best care and if i need to change my practice i want to know about that so you know, you can't subscribe to every journal no. and you obviously can't stay abreast of every single thing because it's that's the volume of information is just too hard. But I think that there you certainly can stay abreast in the areas that matter to you. And and most doctors do. It's just that talking about sex is really hard for a lot of people, even OBGYNs. Mm-hmm. Talking about the genitals is really hard for a lot of people, even OBGYNs, which is shouldn't be like that. And so it's not uncommon as talk and talking for patients, it's hard. So if they come in and they have all these symptoms and complaints and you work it all up and you come to, okay, this is diagnosed, we're going to do it. You get ready, you get up and walk out, you put your hand on the door and all of a sudden, well, there's a vaginal problem out too, right? And it took that whole visit for them to be comfortable enough to bring it up. So then now you have like 30 seconds left because Mm. you thought you'd done the whole visit. But that's medicine. And you have to say, well, you know, I can't just walk out and give this patient well, go wear white cotton underwear. You know, you have to say, well, okay, let's sit down and let's talk about it. And, you know, we, we've gone through a lot of time discussing the other thing, but let's see what I can do justice with this. So I think that a lot of times people brush over the sexual conversations because they think it's going to be so hard. And it's actually not. You know, I have what a lot of people would consider to be very challenging discussions with people every single day because I do it all the time. It's super easy, right? I mean, I don't mean to downplay my patient's symptoms, but repetition makes you better at things. It really does. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you suggest is, that, you know, when you're talking about uh, pelvic exams and the fact that they're not like needed yearly, mm-hmm. but you suggest, you know, maybe sort of like a an annual phone check-in on sort of like 
vulval health, sexual health, to kind of determine then if someone needs to kind of come back for something further. Yeah. Uh, are you open to exploring like kind of like different methodology in terms of like delivery for for women's health? Yeah, I mean, I think that what you have to first of all, you have to say, well, what are our guidelines that we know women have that we are going to recommend for all women? So, for example, cervical cancer screening, pap smear and HPV testing. We know that pap smear should start at the age of 21, and we have these very specific guidelines for cervical cancer screening. So those and that requires currently that requires an office visit that requires sampling. Um, it's possible that at some point we may be able to do self-sampling. That's a possibility, but we don't quite have that population-based data to say that yet. So we know women need to come in for that. We know that under the age of 25, women need to be screened annually for sexually transmitted infections if they're sexually active. But you know what? That can be done with a urine test. You can leave an order in the lab and they can go in and do that, and you can leave an order for the blood test. However, if you don't have a rapport with your doctor, then when you have a symptom, it may be harder to bring that up, especially when you're talking about your vagina or vulva or uterus, because for most people, that's a harder conversation to start. I mean, for me, it's not, right? I mean, that's why I talk about it all the time. But so my idea is kind of, you know, we don't, you don't need an annual pelvic exam anymore because cervical cancer screening isn't that often. We know that regularly just doing an exam doesn't actually offer us anything. So I am a little bit concerned that if women are only seeing their providers every three years, that maybe they won't have any rapport. So they're not even going to be comfortable with that conversation that happens when your hand is on the doorknob, right, at the end of the visit. Mm -hmm. So I still think it's a good idea. Now, some women may be like, I'm totally fine. I'll talk about my vagina anytime, anyplace. I, I, coming in every three years is fine for me. Great. Some women might be like, I really need to talk to my doctor once a year so I have that comfort level. And another woman might be, well, as long as I can email my doctor, I'll feel okay bringing it up. And so I think... We should always meet people where they are because people know what they're comfortable with. Right. So getting back to microbiomes, the, this is something, like you said, you know, when you did your degree, vastly different understanding of it. We're, we're at a, a different point in understanding it. And there have been studies talking about, you know, like the vaginal biome, microbiome, a very different, distinct thing than, you know, gut and, and mm -hmm. other biomes. And linkages to, you know, uh, I'd seen a study about... Uh, cesarean sections mm -hmm. and the linkage to uh, type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm curious about kind of like, is is it at a point where, you, you know, we talk about we don't know what we don't know. Like, are we getting a better sense of what we do know about the microbiome or what there might be to learn from the microbiome? No, we still don't know what we don't know. And so I would really caution people from... Uh, against taking sort of drastic actions based on the knowledge that's there. Because, you know, all these studies that say, oh, well, maybe if you're born by vaginal delivery that you're missing, you're getting a, a colonized with a different microbiome than if you're born by C-section. Although there's also data to show that by, you know, a few months' time, everything's settled out. So, and again, and those, those studies that have maybe potentially raised the risk, because there's also studies that show no, they're very small studies and they're not long term. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we you you can't really sort of make a, a change in practice based on that data. Also, we still don't know what we don't know about the vaginal microbiome. Yeah, maybe we find these things. Who knows? Maybe it's super important in some ways and for for, you know, newborns and not important in other ways. And we still are discovering, you know, new microorganisms in there as, as molecular diagnostics are, are developing. And I get this idea that people like, oh, they get scared. But reporters need to do a better job about putting, you know, 
it's really disheartening as someone who writes about health every day to see a study with 20 patients make international headlines. Right. And I was going to say when you were talking about like trusted sources, it was The Guardian that I right. read it in. So, But they're not huge articles. Yeah. And these are not articles that go over like six years. These are not – but it's cool. It is cool. It's cool science to discuss. But you have to be super careful how you discuss it because, you know – we talk about absolute risk. We can talk about relative risk. We can talk about um, clinical significance, statistical significance. How you write that makes a difference into what it means. I mean, we see it sometimes with um, studies about risk. They'll say, oh, my gosh, the risk of this is double. You're double the risk of death. And you say, oh, I don't take that medication. That's going to double my risk of death. Oh, well, the risk is going from one, you know, from, uh, you know, one in 100,000 to two in 100,000. Okay, well, that's absolute risk is pretty low. My additional risk of dying is one in 100,000. And this medication is also going to do all these other things for me. That risk-benefit ratio probably favors me taking that medication versus double the risk. That's super scary. So it's really important when we communicate about science that we, we make people understand the limitations. I mean, sometimes we'll see international headlines from a case report one single thing that happened to one person, that's not worthy of international headlines. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might sound cool from a news standpoint, but people read that and then they think, well, why shouldn't that happen to me? Or why can't I have that happen? It's like, well, because that's only one person. Right. So speaking of one person, you write yourself <laughs> into this book. <laughs> I do. And I wanted to ask about the decision to do that. Yeah, well, that's me. I guess that's my style of communication. Um, and uh, I, th I thought of People like my sort of just like approachable sort of like every person way I talk about things, I swear, I, you know, I'm just like a regular person. I just happen to be an expert in this field. And I, I sometimes in medicine, it's hard to get people to not hard. People want to know that doctors are human, too. Right. And uh, and so I I, I hoped that making people understand that sometimes I have the same fears or, you know, I once had a hair removal catastrophe, that that might, you know, they would understand that I get those pressures that they're under as well because I do get those pressures. Yeah, I appreciate it when you talked about like like self-test methods and like doing one leg <laughs> yeah, and, one and having like a blind. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes like because we literally have no data on waxing and sugaring. Like there's literally no data. So I thought, well, I'll I'll. I'll be the N of one and, and, you know, give it a try and compare the two. And then, of course, when, you know, I thought I had a complication, I really thought, oh, my God, my New York Times obituary is going to be, you know, Jen Gunter, New York Times columnist, dies of flesh-eating bacteria from, you know, from from waxing and sugaring mishap. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, my kids are never going to live that down. <laughs> no doubt. Um some of the things at the very end, you kind of talk about the the internet. The last chapters, you know, kind of pushing back. Obviously, you've uh -huh. gotten some acclaim for pushing back against a certain person. <laughs> um, some of the things, like when when you bring it up, I'm like, really? Like, is this actually a thing? And one of the one was the garlic, and I was like, really? Do people suggest this? And then I happen to be watching. I don't know if you know the TV show Younger, but uh, in that. in one of the episodes in the last season, this is a plot point. Yeah. And the like holistic medicine person is like, do this. And then, I mean, obviously leads to it's, it's a sitcom. So there's like comedic elements to it. Right. But it was like, oh, this is like part of that feeding that myth ar around these things or the misinformation. Right. That this is just something that's done for a laugh or, you know, could have 
legitimate medical complications. Yeah, no, I mean, women don't randomly stick vegetable matter in their vaginas. They've been told by a trusted source to do it. Naturopaths recommend garlic in the vagina all the time. There's a naturopath in the States who recommends vaginal garlic for chlamydia. Yeah, don't mm, do that. Yeah. Um, there's a book called Our Bodies, Ourselves, which uh, was written in the 70s, but not by physicians. It was written by a women's collective. And, you know, they did the best with the knowledge they had because doctors weren't stepping up. They recommend garlic. It's considered a trusted source. So if you see it in so many places and it's so much in your culture, you're going to think that that is a valid thing to try when it's not. So I can see how people get to it. And, you know, I'm never I never want my ire or anyone who does that to think that I feel bad, bad about them. I feel very angry about the people who are still perpetuating those myths. Um, and people who tell women to use garlic for yeast infections vaginally should be ashamed of themselves. And if there's anybody listening, you should be ashamed of yourself if you're telling people to do that. Right. And this this anger that you have, um, obviously it's about like structural things that perpetuate this. And then, you know, there's like rooted interests. Like there's, there's obviously... Uh, a, a medical system like that capitalizes on this, but there's also like a almost oppositional force of the naturalistic medicine that it profits Absolutely. from these kinds of things. Yeah, too. big wellness. Big That's wellness. Why I call it big wellness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I feel like women are like stuck between like these walls that are closing in, like the trash compactor in Star Wars, right? <laughs> like that. Like one side is like, oh, do this. The yeah. other side is, oh, do this, and neither of them necessarily wants to do anything other than collapse upon this woman? Well, the side, the answer is to fix medicine. That's the answer. Um, and so the answer is to um, Ben Goldacre, Dr. Ben Goldacre, who is a physician who studies a lot of about, actually about big pharma and, and data that goes unreleased from big pharma. He has a great quote, and he says, when there's a problem with the airline industry, the answer isn't to invest in magic carpets. <laughs> Right. That is a really good quote. Isn't that a good quote? That puts it all into perspective. We spend $4.2 trillion a year on wellness. What if we had $4.2 trillion a year to fix medicine? Put that into like research. Right. I, every single time you're out buying a supplement that you don't need, what if that money went into a research fund? Every single time you're getting that charcoal ice cream because somebody told you that's going to be good for your gut and you spent an extra dollar on that, what if that dollar went into research? You know, what if you're taking that zinc lozenge that's probably not going to help your sore throat? What if you put that into research? I'm just saying, right? Like, we are all responsible for it as well. Every single time every one of us buys a wellness product that is untested because they're all untested, you're also contributing to widening that gap, right? Because you're making, as long as those products are profitable, there are going to be more of them, right? Mm -hmm. So I just want people to kind of think about that. Like, nothing that's going to keep you well and healthy is expensive, there's no reason, like, you know, people always ask me my personal wellness. Well, I exercise. I try to eat 25 grams of fiber a day. I wear sunscreen. Um, you know, if I have a new sexual partner, I'm going to use condoms. Like, you know, that there are very little things to sort of keep you healthy. Basic yeah. kinds of things. Things you can't monetize. Right. Well, uh, The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina Separating the Myth from the Medicine. Dr. Jane Gunter, it's out by Random House right now. And thanks very much for coming in and sitting down and talking about the book. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Desolation. Whoa.
Love that doesn't die. Make my embroidery. Love a small word, unable to hold. Well, we stretch at its meaning. playing club regent alongside winnipeg's the watchman sky diggers in town this saturday night and josh finlayson from the band joins me by phone how are you doing josh 
I'm doing great, Michael. Thanks for asking. So you're about to release a new record, uh, and obviously kind of hitting the road before the, the record's really out there. Uh, I'm always curious to talk to a band that's, you know, on the, on the cusp of a, a new record and then playing it live and, and kind of what your feelings are about, you know, audience reaction or, or kind of like where things are at when you're introducing new material to a crowd. Uh, well, I think, you know, there's always a balance to strike. I mean, people that come and see you and pay their uh, hard-earned money, there's certainly part of that bond is or that relationship is is uh, honoring songs that they've uh, you know they've connected to over the years so uh, and I'm you know have always been grateful that there's really no no songs of ours that I don't feel uh, good about playing especially songs that people want to hear so always grateful for that of course but uh, the balance is as a musician and as a creative person you always want to uh you always want to challenge yourself as well and and you're you know i think every artist every songwriter thinks their latest song is the best thing i've ever done <laughs> i think that's just uh i think that's why you keep doing it that mindset that this is like kind of the the new thing is my best thing is that like something that helps you kind of per- pursue a new thing each time like so you don't rest on your laurels uh i think so i mean um you know I, everyone's different and everyone has a different idea of what uh, you know uh, the process is and why why they do it you know ultimately why is the question you uh I mean even for us you know you make a new record like why you know, why are you doing it? Why are you doing it under the name of the Sky Diggers? Blah, 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 all those things. But um, I think you, you know, for me personally, um, it is it is about uh, evolving and growing and uh, trying to, you know, sort of plow new uh, new ground. You know, it's just, it, to me, it, it was part of the uh, commitment of being a creative person is, is that, pursuit of always evolving and growing and you know it doesn't have to be exclusively with the sky diggers but fortunately both andy and i have always shared that interest and shared that passion so and i think in you know with regards to uh let's get friendship right this new record that we've done it was it was very much uh a, a result of um a uh place that we were coming at having both of us lost our fathers in the last few years um we've lost some good friends bandmates and good friends uh the last few years as you do as you get older and this was a way of trying to uh trying to uh i mean cope is kind of the wrong word but uh process but i suppose is probably the better word and and you know i think music is I say this all the time, but music is good medicine for everyone. It's good, you know, it's why people listen to music and feel connected to music, like myself, you know, growing up. And still, I listen to music. It's a place that it takes me somewhere that few other things do. And and an audience, it's the same thing, you know, so it's good medicine all the way around. The the album was described on, on the website as, you know, initially intended to be a suite of songs chronicling the five stages of grief. Mm-hmm. 
you obviously talked about, you know, both of you losing your fathers. That's obviously like a precipitating event for, for that. But then it morphs. And I mean, really this it, there, I mean, there's definitely like a, a look back vibe to some of the songs and the lyrics, but there's also like kind of a, an acceptance, if I can say that, uh, of, of where where a person's at and and uh and it's less like about grief than it is about the like surety of of the present mm-hmm. well is, is that mean, something that came out between like discussions between the two of you like how did you kind of land on this vibe versus kind of what you in, initially intended it to be well i think uh i mean um am i am i correct in, in saying that the uh uh, the the stage the, you know the final stage of grief is acceptance uh, and you know and and however people get there you know some for some people it's through uh, a, a religion or through a you know and uh, uh, but I think I think you ultimately have to find a way to accept loss uh, or whether it's accepting it or whether it's cohabitating with it or living with it, you know, I guess it's different for everyone. But uh, in, I think in our cases, so certainly with our fathers, both of whom were very, you know, were uh, uh, they'd lived long lives, they'd lived great lives. We both had great relationships with our father. Um, so it's not, you know, you grieve and you miss people, but you, you also, you know, you want to celebrate that too. And in the case of friends, you know, you know, some people that die too young, you know, there's something, of course, tragic about that and sad and shitty. Uh, but then, you know, there's also an element of saying, well, you know, what what did we share? What did we accomplish together? What did we, uh, uh, you know, you, I think it's an inevitable that you have to look at the, the, the good things from relationships. Um, of course, I'm not addressing, you know, of course there's other relationships that aren't good and that are destructive, and people carry that with them as well. And uh, I'm not sure that we were necessarily uh, addressing those uh, uh, realities for some people. Right. Now, the sonics of the record, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in particular, obviously, of the song Ineligible, but the, the, yeah. there are a few uh, tracks where it kind of, the roots have been sort of stripped away and it's 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 much more kind of like almost an, an, an industrial sounding thing right like that there's there's like electronics and and beat and kind of a raw nature to the to the sonics and and I'm curious about the decision to go there well um the decision to uh, to go to the bathhouse uh, and work with Niall Spencer was really the decision um it's uh, uh, the bathhouse is owned by the uh, the uh, fellows in the Tragically Hip, and they've it's been around for years. We've re- the we've recorded there as a band. I did you know I played in uh, Gord Downey's solo band and did a lot of solo recording with you know most of his recording was done at, uh, in Bath. So there's a, a long uh, relationship with that studio. And working with Niles was a big part of what we wanted to do. And uh, Niles is a an incredibly talented uh, engineer and producer. And uh, and 
you know, you, sometimes it's great to be able to just go in with, uh, you know, a fairly um, uh, raw idea. And I would play guitar or piano to a, a click track and Annie would sing. And most of the time, that's how we started the songs. Uh, as opposed to going in with the band and tracking it as a band, mm-hmm. we just we wanted to do this differently because we didn't we didn't entirely know what we were uh, um, uh, trying to achieve. I guess we, we I mean we didn't know what the results would be, and I think we just had these songs and we you know the process of recording is always one that selfishly. Uh, we've always really enjoyed. I mean, I think in a lot of ways the the recordings end up being more for us than for anyone when we're doing them. And then when you release them and and uh, you know you you uh, detach yourself from them, either people connect to them or they don't. But you you know you sort of move on as a as as a songwriter as a uh, an artist. I I typically think I just move on and. I don't really think about it a lot anymore. I'm kind of more interested in the next thing. Um, but to answer your question, Niall Spencer was very much the uh, the catalyst for uh, the way the record sounds. He's the, he produced the record uh, and engineered the record and kind of brought a lot of the emotional qualities to the table that we were uh, we were after. So the song Ineligible, uh, I mean, it's the latest song that you've released. There's a, a lyric video for it, and it was inspired by uh, an artwork by Anita Matasevich and, and Jason Halter of all of the categories of citizens ineligible to vote in Canada in the past. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about, like, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, it's a very bracing list as, as Andy kind of goes through the litany of, of people who've been excluded from voting in, in history. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, this the timing of the record is such that we're right in the midst of a, a federal election. Was it like we? I mean, because this doesn't necessarily fit with the like thematics of you know processing grief or you know friendship or, or any of those kind of themes. Was it like we need to include this because of the timing, or like was this always going to be on the record regardless? Or well, I mean, it, it's that's a great question, Michael, and and you know it was. Uh... Um, it had been an idea that Andy had had. He'd, he'd come across the uh, Wonder Inc. was the company that Anita and Jason had, and it was a it was a pop up art gallery close to where uh, Andy and his wife live, and they just happened upon it. And uh, part of the display was this written I don't know if it, you'd call it a declaration or what it was. It was a it was definitely a, a government uh, written. Piece. And I think it just really resonated with Andy. And, it, you know, I mean, uh, the timing with the election, uh, of course, was uh, not uh, entirely uh, coincidental. I mean, I think I think part of it as well is just the, you know, the world in, in general is uh, it's just, you know, we're going through a, a phase where people feel this need to, you know, cl- you know, almost close themselves, uh, you know, like kind of, you know, there's um, whether it's immigration or whether it's borders, whatever it is, there's a there's a 
there's a real sense of people kind of becoming a little less open and uh, uh, and you know I mean I, I I think that potentially those ebbs and flows happen uh, whether you know that's a natural thing of course I think the I think the real resonance of this piece was um, just how uh, how quickly things can change and how how quickly fear and ignorance can sort of take hold mm-hmm. of our society uh, and sometimes misinformation is is something that we uh, we forget um, and infiltrate uh, in in very kind of insidious ways and that you know like reading this year of course it's shocking to think that when you read it literally you just think this is so fucked <laughs> how could we possibly think this way but you know we you know history does teach us uh, and reminds us that you know uh, attitudes do change and they have to and we have to be vigilant to uh, to make sure they're they're honored right so the band is running a, a contest uh, a, a remix contest for this uh, mm-hmm. and you've invited uh, people to create their own remix you're you're making the stems available on the website and then all of the uh, remixes are due uh, by Friday October 18th uh, is that so that maybe the the winner can be announced before the election or oh I uh, you know that if that was discussed I, I wasn't aware of it sure specifically but potentially it was I don't remember that part of the conversation but um, I think it's I think it's just a, um, you know, it's a, uh, it, the record comes out on the board, so I think it was just the date that was chosen. Sure enough. I was just curious if it kind of left you like a, a week window to uh, to do a quick. Is it the election's the 21st, right? Yeah, I guess it's that just yeah. after that weekend. It's the Monday, Monday the 21st. Um, so that's at skydiggers.com slash ineligible with the, the details for that. Um, and then is it the band that's going to be judging the remixes or do you have like, you know, some friends that you're going to get involved with it or what's the, you, do you want to be a judge? Michael? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm sure we will, uh, we will be involved in some way, shape or form. We had another friend who was, uh, who we had talked about doing it as well, but yeah, we'll, uh, you know, we'll deal with what, uh, Whatever remixes are submitted, and we'll come up with a, a winner. They're all winners, though, Michael. They're all winners. The album closes with a cover of It Was a Very Good Year. Yeah. Obviously, most famous by uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, yeah. what, was the, what was the mindset behind the, deciding, A, that you would do this cover, but B, that this is what kind of would close out the record? Um, I had a friend send me a... Uh, I think like a Vimeo, is that the right, the video uh, site, a few years ago, two or three years ago, and it was uh, Frank Sinatra listening back to a take of that song in the studio, and he was like moved by his performance and by the band's performance. You could see he was emotionally like he was quite emotional about it 
and it was just so powerful uh, and you know such a such an incredible window into him as a, as an artist you know like uh, and uh, it just really stuck with me and it it you know it's a it's a funny song like it, it's a even in his sort of repertoire it's a it's a it's a unique song uh, it's just verses really I think there's four verses four or five verses and um, and it, it's just about the pa- you know it is really about the passage of time uh, and it just seemed to fit the uh, uh, the vibe of what we were doing and um, and you know I think for Andy it was just like you know it's treading on pretty uh, sacred ground you know like uh, you know doing a Sinatra song isn't uh, isn't something you want to do uh, 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 lightly or irre- you don't want to be irreverent about it but I think he sings it great and there's a lot of kind of uh, and and I think Niles did such a great job producing it as well. Like it, it's sort of, you know, for me, a cover, uh, ideally you've done something unique with it and kind of, uh, you know, taken it somewhere else. Um, and not to say that it's better than an author's version or anyone's version, but you, you want to hopefully do something, uh, um, to add value to it or add something to it. And, Hopefully we've done that. Well, there's some like there's space to the recording and kind of like an echoey, kind of like like Andy's by himself. Whereas uh, Frank's version, obviously, you know, the, um, we're talking about a band and an orchestra and stuff. Like there's yeah. you know obviously like swelling and yeah, that kind of like classic '60s full full studio thing. And, and I think that that makes it a different kind of vibe. You talked earlier about, you know, not looking or always looking kind of like to the next thing for you, you know, creatively or, you know, sonically. Has someone ever like sat you down and played you something from the past and it's forced you to kind of like reexamine what you've done in the way that you talked about Sinatra kind of being being played this recording? Um, do you mean like play something that I've done in the past? Yeah. Like, has have, have you had like an outside arbiter say hey like listen listen to yourself back then let me point something out or let me see what you think of it now um i mean it's funny i that happened recently because uh we had um we were transferring a bunch of two inch tapes um from uh around 1996 it was desmond's hip city um and uh and i was listening through a bunch of uh takes like alternate takes to some of the songs and you know you, you do you know when you listen to that you you wonder like <laughs> who who are those people <laughs> um it's sort of surprising sometimes because you're you're often moving uh you know you're moving through things you're moving through ideas and you know like it's 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 like playing dress up you know you try a song like it's a punk rock song or it's a country song or whatever it's uh you're just trying different things just to see how pliable the the song is or the band is uh so sometimes when i listen back i go uh, i i love i love it's like looking at old photographs of family photographs sometimes it's great and you you know it triggers memories of where you were and what you were doing and uh you know uh sometimes they're good memories sometimes they're not but um 
from that perspective, I, I, I don't mind doing that. But, uh, and, you know, especially it's one thing if it's a record. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't tend to listen to a lot of what we did because uh, uh, it just, it, like once, what I was saying earlier, like once you go through the process of making it and committing to it, there has to be sort of a process of letting go and detaching yourself from it because you really have no uh, way of of judging what it is. If someone else likes it, that's great, but it's sort of hard to know whether you've uh, uh, you really achieved what you set out to. I mean, I think that's why you continue to do things. Mm-hmm. As John Lennon always said, that's why, you know, uh, you know, someone... Uh, he said, I never, I never thought I got it right. That's why I'm still doing it. <laughs> and I just, I like that idea. You know, I like the idea that, that the, the process is really the, uh, the prize. The process is the purpose. Uh, yeah. Josh, before I let you go, I want to get you to pick a track off of the new record that we can play for listeners, uh, whether it's one we've talked about or one we haven't. Uh, and if you have a reason why you're picking that, we'd love to hear it. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with uh, If I'm Spared. And uh, this uh, this this song, I think, was sort of the the real trigger of the record, and one that uh, um, I, I just I I think this is a really cool combination of like what I think what how I perceive as songs that Andy and I have written together over the years. It it you know it's something the two of us could play together anywhere, anytime. But I love the uh, production that Niles did and I love uh, the way it, it evolves and I love the sentiment of it. All right, well the album's called Let's Get Friendship Right the Sky Diggers at Club Regent Saturday alongside the Watchman. Josh, thanks for, for taking some time to talk about the record. Michael, my pleasure. Thanks for the interest. If I'm spared 